Welcome to Context and Clarity. I am Chuck. I am Karen. I used to be a Democrat. I used to be a Republican. I am still a liberal. I'm still a conservative, but since our parties left us, we're not really sure what we are. But we do know this. As Abraham Lincoln reminds us, we are not enemies. We are friends. <laughs> yeah. No, we're not friends anymore, Karen. Uh, you know what? For a year, I've gone on with, uh, with this little charade of yours. We're not friends, all right? <laughs> we might have just had a little bit of technical difficulty in in recording the um, introduction we about five times. <laughs> Karen had her microphone on if she had her heater off. If she didn't have three kids running through the room, if she didn't have birds flying into her house, if she wasn't eating cereal and chewing gum. I'm sorry. It's hard to work with such a paragon of virtue and perfection. You know, I'm a professional, Karen. I'm a professional. Okay. We'll go with that. Are you ready to actually work? Let's work. I am. And, you know, we are (laughs) No, you keep talking, though. We are starting something... (laughs) <laughs> and we are we did not mention the Mueller report at all. We didn't. That's because it's irrelevant. <laughs> I mean, it's not really irrelevant. It's just that both sides are claiming to have some type of victory with it. And like we talked about in our special investigations uh, episodes, which I think we were, you know, made the point that it what really matters most is the investigations that are in that the Mueller investigation brought up. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's, I, th- I think you made the best point of all that I've heard people complain about that. We actually made money on the Mueller investigation. Right. So we should have a bunch of them. Every president should have a special investigation. <laughs> <laughs> we could, we could reduce the deficit. There that's, you go. Yeah. That's my, that's my thought on that. But, Tell me what we're going to talk about today, because I have really no idea. I haven't written any of this. I haven't researched any of it. (laughs) Well, today, we're starting with a meme that has a hand that's full of cash with text over it that says, this is all it takes to get laws passed in the U.S. We call it bribery. They call it lobbying. Making it rain there. You you would tend to agree with it, correct? Yeah, I do Lobbying is basically bribery. Right. So you would you would say that that was true. Well, first off, it's important to remember that our society tends to use lobbying, special interests, and PAC interchangeably, and it tends to demonize all of them. And is that really warranted? Is it all just a form of bribery and the catalyst for all corruption? Well, we wanted to find out. At least I wanted to find out because... You're constantly railing on about it. The key to understanding anything is to start by defining it. Black's Law Dictionary defines the three terms we are talking about this way. Special interest group. It's an organization that seeks to influence legislation or government policy in favor of a particular interest or issue. Lobby. It has three definitions. To talk with a legislator, sometimes in a luxurious setting, in an attempt to influence their vote, or to support or oppose a measure by working to influence a legislator, or to try to influence a decision maker. And then PAC is Political Action Committee, which is 
An organization formed by special interest groups to raise and contribute money to the campaign of political candidates that the group believes will promote its interests. So basically, individuals with similar goals in mind gather to centralize their power and become a special interest group. The group organizes into a lobby with a few representatives of the group, usually attorneys, because if you're going to be slimy, well, you need attorneys. <laughs> they meet with legislators or people in power to secure investment in those interests. Oftentimes, special interest groups will create a PAC with the specific purpose of raising funds to support a candidate that they believe will further their interests. It doesn't actually sound all that ominous if you're thinking of your own special interest, and it's really nothing new. Right. In fact, the founders considered easy access to government institutions paramount to freedom, which is why the First Amendment to the Constitution guarantees the three rights of speech, association, and petition. The founders were pragmatic, and they knew that the special interest groups would try to influence Congress and state assemblies because a national consensus would be nearly impossible and because no citizens of a free society would all have the same vested interests. Madison spoke on this quite a bit in The Federalist Number 10. As long as the reason of man continues fallible and he is at liberty to exercise it, different opinions will be formed on religion, on political theory, and practice above all else on the uses and distribution of property. Madison also went on to say that the regulation of these various and interfering interests forms the principal task of legislation. But truthfully, how could Madison and others have fathomed the growth of government and the complexity of society that it was due to serve? In the 18th century, special interest agents were few and their methods were basically direct, which is in complete opposition to the highly organized, heavily financed professional lobbies that we have today. Still, lobbies and the intentions, both good and evil, and actually they all have evil intentions, have existed since the birth of government, <laughs> Karen. Plato. You know who played, play, not the thing that you play with and make little shapes with, Karen. He was a philosopher. Yeah, I, I did write the script, so I oh, am that's familiar right. with yeah. Plato. Plato even denounced the fawning speeches and witcheries of supplication that some employed to influence the Athenian Senate and even proposed that those officials who took bribes should be put to death for their violation of public trust. I think we should do that today. I An knew occasional you were say hanging that. of a can congressman, bringing the guillotine back, whoop, see a head hit the ground. That'd straighten out a few people. Now, despite his passionate distaste for such actions, Plato did consider open access to the governing powers a necessity to efficient government and urged that the guardians of the state should always give prompt audience to all comers. There is a myth surrounding the origin of lobbies. The legend goes that in the late 1860s, President Ulysses S. Grant would escape to the lobby of the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C., to relax with some brandy and a cigar. He would never fail to be interrupted by petitioners whom he branded those damn lobbyists. While this story served to popularize the term lobbyist, it wasn't really 
where the word originated. The earliest uses of lobby came from England in the 1640s, and it referred to lobbies in the House of Commons, where the public could directly petition its representatives. By the time the first English settlements had developed in America, the idea of special interest groups, oftentimes using money as a form of influence, was already cemented, accepted, and protected as a form of petition. The right was granted in the Magna Carta, although in a rather anemic fashion, and was considered a cherished liberty, causing the right to be granted in every colonial charter, beginning with the Virginia Company in 1609 and beyond. In fact, Benjamin Franklin was a well-known lobbyist for the colonies prior to the American Revolution. During the early American Revolution and the Constitutional Convention, lobbying was considered pretty successful given that it helped produce a revolution, it secured independence, and it assisted in the construction of the Constitution. Given this, it would make sense that the founders saw petitioning in the act of lobbying for individual interests vital despite the possibilities of corruption and as a practice that should continue. The founders believed that there were two controls in place that the lobbies would be checked. The first being the fact that no one expected the national government to play an especially powerful role in national affairs. After all, the country's economic interests were predominantly agricultural. With the exception of distribution of public lands and development of banking mercantile policy, the federal government really didn't have a whole lot of involvement. And special considerations, or relief that interest groups sought, was usually at the state level. The second check was supposed to be that the two theories of representative government at the time of the drafting of the Constitution seemed to provide built-in protections against manipulation by any lobbies that could appear, and it would assure that the majority's interests would nearly always be served. From the 1780s on, there was a slow disintegration on the checks the founders depended on. Now, this includes the Yazoo land frauds, the Society for the Encouragement of Useful Manufacturers, Jackson's veto of the National Bank, the Buchanan administration, and Pendleton's Palace of Fortune. Sounds like a game show. <laughs> Following the Panic of 1857, special interest groups pressured for economic relief by means of land appropriation schemes, railroad and steamship projects, and homestead acts. Despite investigations of corrupt lobbying practices after the Civil War, Nothing changed. In fact, it got much worse, Karen. The thing that really increased lobbyists' impact on the country was the growth of American industry. As industries cropped up rapidly, so did a new elite class of corporation owners who were able to finance their lobbyists with ease. Massive amounts of money were suddenly at play. The change in economy and class structure shifted everything. In the past, a member of Congress had only to measure the dominant interest of their district or state against interest of other states or the nation as a whole. But after 1900, it became nearly impossible to discern what the dominant interest really was. Lobbies went through another significant change as America transitioned into the 20th century. 
The two main transformations included the emergence of national associations seeking to influence legislation and the appearance of professional staff in place of the more freelance lobbyists of the past. After World War II, lobbies shifted into a, a more professional model, utilizing public relations offices and advertising techniques, and they finally had the financial means to use modern technology to disseminate their message. Access to all of this was usually limited to the most wealthy and powerful groups, and this made them the loudest voices in the room. Another development was the surge of public interest lobbies as Americans felt more investment in the inner workings of their government. The critical change to the way lobbies worked came in 1946 when Congress passed the Federal Regulation of Lobbying Act. And this was to bring the lobbies under formal control, and it narrowed limits in defining a lobby, so many powerful special interest groups never formally registered as a lobby at all and instead used loopholes to exert their power. It was about the same time, 1944 to be exact, that the first PAC was formed. The Congress of Industrial Organizations wanted to help President Franklin Roosevelt get re-elected, but the Smith-Connolly Act of 1943 blocked their attempts. So, the group went around Smith-Connolly by urging individual union members to voluntarily contribute money directly to the Roosevelt campaign. It worked very well, and PACs, or Political Action Committees, were born. Now, we're really going to get into PACs and dark money next week, but to go back to the beginning of the show and the meme that we presented, the answer is mixed. Lobbying was not meant to just be bribery. Its purpose was supposed to allow petitioning and be a stakeholder in your government, but corrupt people and dangerous legal decisions gave space for just rampant corruption, and it now makes the meme uncomfortably true. Well, more than uncomfortably true, Karen, I'm going to just refer to a study done by Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page at Princeton University. If you've ever felt like your opinion doesn't matter and the government doesn't really care what you think, you're right. One That's thing cynical. No, it's true. There's <laughs> one thing that they found. One thing that gets politicians' attention is money. And no matter what the, what the issue, the opinions of the bottom 90% of income earners in America have a – this is their term – statistically non-significant impact. But they found that economic elites, business interests, and people who can afford lobbyists carry major influence. So what you and I think on a, on a subject doesn't really matter. It's how much money it's, is going to get put into that subject. Well, a really great paper in the Alabama Law Review explains the grievance of lobby disclosure laws. And the real problem with it is how they limit access of petition, which is what the founders left provision for in the Constitution. It's really vital that both parties work to restore as much integrity as possible in the process of petitioning or lobbying for our interests. To just dismiss everything as, well, that's just lobbyists buying the government is kind of lazy. We have the power to demand change, and we need to do just that. And for now, that is all we have to say about that. 
Yes. We want to thank everyone who takes the time to listen to us. You can find us on all the regular podcasting platforms, and we'd love to see you join us at our Facebook group at Context and Clarity Podcast Group on Facebook, and you can follow us on Twitter at Clarity Context. We want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. You guys are awesome, and we thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Your support really does mean the world to us. We also want to thank those who share us on social media, and we would really appreciate any positive reviews on Facebook, Podbean, iTunes, or Stitcher. We appreciate each and every one of you more than you know. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. 